0: Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast sponsored by Columbia University's Dean of Humanities and School of Arts and Sciences and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates James P. Shenton, assistant professor of the core curriculum and member of the Department of Political Science, Turku Ishiksel's book, Europe's Functional Constitution, a Theory of Constitutionalism Beyond the State. First, I'll bring you Turku's words from the panel, where she discusses the main concepts and forces at work in her book.
1: Um, well, thank you so much uh, uh, to everyone for being here. I want to first thank the institutions and people who made uh, this uh, panel possible today, particularly to Eileen Galuli and to Emily Bloom uh, of the Hayman Center, um, who both worked tirelessly to bring uh, this event together today. Um, also to Francois Carral of the European Institute, um, uh, which is co-sponsoring the panel, and uh, to the Dean of the Social Sciences, Alondra Nelson. Um, Uh, under whose initiative this series takes place. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, I participated in another uh, event here at Columbia. Um, And uh, Professor Carol Gluck was giving a gracious introduction, and she read out the title of my recently published book, uh, Europe's Functional Constitution. Then she turned to me and asked, do you still think so? See, that's the title of the book. Is it an ill-judged title? Um, That's probably the foremost question on everyone's minds tonight. Um, And uh, uh, you know, the EU has been so beleaguered on all fronts uh, recently um, that uh, we're inclined to question the suggestion that you know it is a functional organization in any relevant sense. (laughs) So I guess I should start by saying that that's not what I mean when I describe its legal system as. Um, a system of functional constitutionalism. In fact, the upshot of the book is quite different. Um, So uh, I should start, uh, I feel like, by uh, explaining what I mean by that phrase. The book is an attempt at empirically anchored political theory, um, as uh, Jack uh, mentioned in his uh, very kind introduction. It's an attempt to interrogate a powerful political body in light of a series of contemporary principles of political legitimacy, Um, not least among them democracy, individual autonomy, and the rule of law. In writing the book, I was motivated by two very broad questions. Uh, the first of these is Can we adapt the idea of constitutional rule to institutions that are not states, um, such as international or supranational ones? Would we even want to? Why would that be a question worth investigating? Um, and the second question I had in mind is Is the European Union one of these institutions? That is to say, is it constitutionalized? Which implicates another couple of questions, which is, you know, what is constitutionalism? And indeed, why not? What is the European Union, right? So, uh, so those are uh, two uh, modest questions. So, As you can tell from the questions, I'm looking at the EU from the lens of constitutional theory. I'm most interested in finding out what the EU can teach us about the practice of constitutional ideals, about the ways in which adapting constitutionalism to a supranational entity uh, changes the very idea of constitutional rule. But I also think that the EU's peculiar system of constitutional rule, as it has emerged over the decades, is key to understanding its current political predicaments, and there are certainly many of those. Um, It's not news to anyone in this room that Europe is in the grip of a particularly noxious type of identity politics, so I'm going to quickly outline my argument and then move on to the question of what my book has to say about that, um, which I suspect is uppermost on many people's minds today. So as the book's um, title implies, the central claim in it is that the EU instantiates um, a system of functional constitutionalism. There's a two-step claim there. It entails, first, that despite being rooted in a series of interstate agreements, um, the EU should be considered as a constitutional order in its own right. And second, that this constitutional order is best understood as a system of functional constitutionalism. So let me expand on that um, idea. So syllogistically, constitutionalism is a system in which all political authority derives from and is subordinate to the constitution. But then we ask, where does the constitution itself draw its authority? Modern constitutions appeal to a range of sources, the will of the people. The inalienable rights of individuals, the authority of a nation's founders, a narrative of national destiny, divine sanction or revelation, or ancient customs, to name a few. But in modern pluralistic democracies, appeals to constitutional authority tend to draw on two bedrock principles, and those are the ones that I focus on in the book, namely those of democracy and individual rights. According to a democratic conception of constitutionalism, the Constitution draws its legitimacy from enabling the exercise of collective self-rule. By contrast, rights-based accounts tend to construe the Constitution's primary task as uh, carving out and protecting a sacrosanct sphere of individual liberty and safeguarding it against encroachment by the state. And I argue in the book that the EU is a supranational constitutional system insofar as it guides, constrains, and enables the institutions of its member states. But its authority doesn't map onto either the democratic or the rights-based conceptions of constitutional legitimacy. For one thing, it operates at arm's length from traditional mechanisms of popular participation and representation. Um, So it doesn't meet any straightforward democratic criteria of political obligation. Similarly, its mandate for protecting individual rights and liberties is too narrow compared to a traditional constitutional system. Above all, the EU exists to protect individual rights of commercial mobility, I argue in the book, but the conventional sorts of civil and political rights are merely incidental to its legal system the EU instantiates a distinct form of constitutional practice, one which is justified by a claim to govern effectively in the economic sphere. In other words, the EU's constitutional elements draw their authority from the functional imperatives of creating and maintaining an economic union. Uh, And I use the phrase functional constitutionalism to describe this teleological repurposing of constitutional rule. That, to my mind, is the main contrast. Now, the book sets out this concept of functional constitutionalism and sort of defends, you know, illustrates the ways in which the EU's various um, features of the EU's legal order illustrates um, uh, this mode of political ordering. But the book is also a critique of the system of functional constitutionalism, far from an endorsement of it. Um, And I want to give you a flavor of this critique. Um, So I observed at the start that Europe is in the grip of identity politics. And I believe that the book illuminates some of the reasons why the EU is ensnared in the trap of identity politics and unable to respond to it effectively. Um, So I spent part of uh, last week preparing for another presentation perusing the latest Eurobarometer opinion, public opinion polls. So according to these polls, when people were asked about challenges facing their own country, they named economic concerns like unemployment, housing, pensions, and rising costs of living as, you know, as the main challenges. And the same socioeconomic concerns were expressed when people were asked about challenges to their own families, to their own lives. But when they were asked about challenges facing the EU, 48% named immigration, and 39% said terrorism. By contrast, only 19% of the EU 28 ranked, quote, unquote, the economic situation as one of the top challenges facing the EU. So when Brits and Estonians and Cypriots and Irish look at the EU, apparently they see not a sphere of economic opportunity or a guarantee of geopolitical security or of the stability of democratic institutions, But they see an overcrowded boat, um, one that is floating precariously in terrorist-infested waters. Now, how on earth did the EU come to be associated with terrorism and immigration, rather than with the things that fall within its central scope of competence, namely trade, economic growth, currency stability, and the like? There's a profound paradox at work here, and I think it's a very instructive one. The European Integration Project is, at its core, an attempt to solve the problem of identity politics. Specifically, the prescription of its key founders was to wean Europeans off of the opioid of identity politics by using economic incentives and benefits. Recall that the coal and steel community was essentially a plan B. It represented the abandonment of the sort of starry-eyed, comprehensive Federalist projects of the immediate post-war period. Uh, so the alternative approach adopted by folks like Jean Monnet and Robert, Robert Schuman required only a minimal principled commitment on the part of member states, and in fact that allowed them to jealously guard their sovereign prerogatives until economic imperatives of the market led them seamlessly into a political union. And as I've written elsewhere, the founders viewed European integration um, as a test case, as it were, for something like the 18th century commercial peace hypothesis, a providential belief in the civilizing and pacifying power of commercial interdependence. Like Kant, Montesquieu, or Hume, they regarded protectionism as a goad to armed conflict and believed that a shared institutional framework that promoted economic exchange would lead to rising levels of affluence, which would in turn discipline and rationalize the behavior of states. The experience of getting rich together would dull the craving for national grandeur and alleviate chauvinistic impulses. The grand strategy of the European founders was to let the project of economic necessity dictate institutional and political choices. So to the extent that it framed supranational politics as a value neutral sphere of quote unquote problem solving, this strategy more or less insulated the European integration project from democratic politics, especially during the founding decades which arguably allowed supranational institutions to strike strong roots. But the strategy of building a system of functional constitutionalism worked because economic goals were understood against the background of an overarching ideal, namely that of peace and political stability. But now that that, those ideals have sort of, the ideal of peace has largely been achieved and war has become, quote unquote, unthinkable, the idea of peace, a war between the member states has become unthinkable. The ideal of peace has lost its motivating force. And instead what we're left with is European integration as a get-rich-quick scheme. Monet's choice of a bureaucratic and technocratically legitimated path to integration um, managed to postpone the inevitable reintrusion of politics. Having been kept out of the decisions in favor of ever closer union, national publics are now reasserting themselves. And they're doing so in embittered and disaffected form. We're seeing waves of dismissive Euroscepticism, virulent xenophobia, or resentful populism rock many of the member states. In other words, the commercial peace paradigm has taken Europe about as far as it can go. Uh, Far from seamlessly resolving the important political questions of integration, the economic interdependence of the member states and the expanding power of supranational institutions are posing those political questions with renewed urgency. And yet, all of the institutional embellishments that the EU has acquired since Maastricht don't change the fact that the EU is at its core an economic union. It approaches problems the way an economic union would, by trying to generate more wealth, by trying to make the pie bigger. It tries to address all types of discontent by making the pie bigger. And at this point in time it strikes me that trying to solve an identity politics problem by doubling down on technocratic solutions is like trying to fix An electrical failure with a monkey wrench. And you know what happens if you try to do that, right? You get electrocuted. Um, So I'm going to stop there. Um, I very much look forward to the discussion. I want to thank my distinguished colleagues for paying my book um, the incredible compliment of being here um, to talk about, well, having read it, you know, that's the compliment, And, and, and also showing up on a cold. Monday night to talk about it. So thank you very much in advance, and I look forward to our discussion.
0: Now, we'll hear the comments Nadia Urbanati, Kyriakos Sakopoulos Professor of Political Theory and Hellenic Studies at Columbia, made about Turku's book at the panel. She begins by discussing the role of scholars in the current conflict in the EU.
2: So this uh, is is incredibly important, according to me, a very, very wonderful book. And um, it brings us back to... Ground Zero Constitutionalism because as she says, she says at the beginning, um, the role of the scholar she adopts is not that of telling people and politicians what they should do or avoid doing, but to analyze and elucidating and understanding what is going on now in order to make them capable of clarifying what that should be in fact interesting or or good doing. So the ground zero is the 18th century in this case, because she brings us back to um, the critical analysis of the foundation of European constitutionalism, functionalist constitutionalism, as we know uh, uh, it today. So three principles mainly are uh, ruling around, or basic principles around which this book is connected. Um, the idea of um, 18th century constitutionalism, which is the outcome of a long trajectory going back to the Roman Empire, to the Caesar and so on and so forth, is to try to have uh, um, the power of command of the states capable of imposing obedience through force, how to legitimate this force and how to make force subjected to rights mm-hmm. so basic rights as a limitation of power of a state uh, sovereign on the one hand and on the other hand to make the subject themselves uh, contributing in uh, the legitimacy process by their own consent does self-governing or self-government democratic legitimacy these are two important parallel uh, trajectories that have gone on. And the third one, that is again 19th, 18th century, that was very well understood from, he's an expert on this, from Montesquieu and Kant, the idea that in order to have it at the national state level, you cannot ignore the international level, because You need to have states around you that operate in the same way if you want to avoid using force instead of rights in order to uh, satisfy the uh, desire or the need of security. So these are the three important elements that we find today. Domestic democratization and liberal constitutionalism and international integrations through. Forms of integration through what? in an uh, indirect way, this is the unintended consequence of commerce and so on and so forth. Indirect way, because this is the only way that we can um, convince people that it is in their own interests uh, uh, instead of imposing uh, on them a kind of straitjacket of goals to be reached. So within this context, um, we have to read functional uh, constitutionalism, as uh, I, uh, I understood by reading this, this book. Now, there is, though, a novelty in this functionalist constitution, uh, constitutional conception um, that is becoming uh, relevant also for the domestic, meaning uh, um, what is at the beginning uh, the domestic state members, they agree on creating these uh, functional constitutional behavior among them, in the long process, this functionalism uh, fits back on the domestic, and thus the domestic order is becoming more and more in tune with this functionalism. So we are eroding the political foundation of national or state-based constitutionalism in order to adapt it to the uh, cosmopolitan or the international. So in these two elements, the element of domestic and the element of international, the element of political, the element of functional, the functional wins. Mm-hmm. And is eroding the political. This is also within the 18th century technocratic project of eliminating com- conflicts by eliminating the reason for conflict, which right. is, yeah. is, I find this fascinating because here we are in front of uh, a new way of interpreting uh, a, a new form of constitutionalization of politics, mm-hmm. uh, actually, something new, meaning the um, obsolescence of political constitutionalism. And this can be seen also, paradoxically, in this fatigue that member states have in uh, uh, being consistent with their own democratic constitutionalism. There is a fatigue more and more. Why? Because with the crisis, and since she's very good in that, is showing that this constitution is, is based on functionalism for the achievement of well-being or prosperity. Meaning that we, when this well-being and prosperity is not there, but instead this crisis there, so the straitjacket is imposed on national constitutions to adapt more and more to the, uh, to the uh, functionalist uh, uh, criteria. And at this point, uh, does the very national democracies, they become less democratic. Mm-hmm. So one example, it's uh, in my country at least, Monty's government. Uh, in, uh, in a span of 24 hours, he was able, with a large majority of the p- of the parliament, to change an important article of the constitution, which all the uh, n- uh, national constitution they have, the article that impose balanced budget uh, rules, meaning a limiting, narrowing uh, the national sovereignty power of the state. Mm-hmm. So, the paradox does is that becoming more European, we become more functionalistic at the state level, and this is, this, it was anticipated by previous in, in the, uh, co- comments, this means that uh, the executive powers become more relevant than the parliamentary of the political power. The administrative power becomes more important than the political power. Mm-hmm. So at the end of uh, the day, after almost uh, 60 years, uh, 50, 60 years of uh, Europeanization, of constitutional politics in Europe, what are we? Are more or less uh, in tune with the democratic principles uh, which Europe started uh, to uh, to uh, to claim after World War II? I think we are in another phase, in a phase of an erosion of, in fact, not only democracy. In Direct sense, but the, the criterion according, according to which uh, the constitutional uh, democracies used to work. Mm-hmm. Even the issue of accountability is becoming more and more obscure and less relevant. Other forms of accountability, accountability to functionalism, mm-hmm. that is, to outcome, to output, uh, accountability to consequences instead of principles. So there is a an overturn of uh, um, um, notion of constitutionalism a good functionalism within uh, this constitutional moment. So my question to you then, because this is fascinating, it's a very, on the one hand, also frightening, because we are really in the kind of domain of, uh, uh, um, I would uh, say, positivistic kind of yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so the question I would like to ask you know, is the following because you seem to at the end to be a little bit not optimistic but to have a good uh, uh, argument instead of being uh, um, uh, you know uh, there is nothing to to propose uh, a, to propose a, 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 an approach that is not dualistic state and procedure but instead a kind of um, what you call it, reflexivity, you call it, uh, you have an expression that I, I
1: word, yeah,
2: exactly. It is, there are these three principles, liberty, mm-hmm. uh, democracy, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Why don't we think of putting them together in balance so that one can be connected to the other one, because after all, all constitutions want not simply to have uh, some basic rights or limitation of power, but also to be capable of functioning effectively. Mm -hmm. But my question to you is, in these three principles, efficiency seems to be more and more relevant than the other other two. Mm -hmm. Because it's easier to be measured, It is easier to be uh, imposed because it's very regulatory and less and less uh, um, judgment uh, value based. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, um, of these liberty, democracy, and efficiency, it seems to me that there is a true trade-off between them. And when you have to choose, as we see every day now in Europe, particularly at the state level, between uh, um, liberty and security, you choose security. When you have to choose between uh, uh, self-government legitimacy, you choose efficiency instead. Mm-hmm. So are you sure that it's possible? There is still room for this reflexivity mm-hmm. and pragmatic adjustment of these three mm-hmm. difficult principles to be adjusted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank, you.
0: Thank you. At the end of the panel, Turku responded to the other panelists. First, she responds to the panel as a whole before addressing the question of reflexive readjustment that Nadia raises.
1: Uh, You know, I, I think my foremost response is going to be thank you. I've had this sort of, I've had several aha moments here. It's one of these occasions where sort of, by listening to folks talk about your work, you sort of understand it better and kind of wish you could go back and mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, you know now I get what the <laughs> argument is about. So thank you very much for that. This was very enlightening for me. I, I mean, I could, I don't want to go on and on and sort of, you know, um, I, I also want folks to get questions in, you know, if they, if they want to. Um, but I'm so glad that the sort of 18th century parallel that I was trying to, um, to bring up uh, resonated um, with um, with uh, uh, each of the commentators, that you know, this idea that we've um, uh, we've kind of overlooked maybe as political theorists, political economy at our um, peril, um, in a sense that you know, at the uh, uh, at, at the risk of sort of missing really important political structures that are taking shape around the management of political economy that that uh, sort of are creating democratic discontent. Um, now, uh, and I'll say something about this reflexive readjustment point um, that Nadia brought up because I think it might help me answer one of Katrina's points. You, know, you said you want to hear more about, you know, how do we know a constitutional order when we see it? You know, how do we theorize that? Why? Um, Uh, why treat the EU in that way and maybe not the WTO or something like that. And um, something that I noticed in this literature was that a lot of the time there was no dialogue going on between people who said that the European Union should be considered a constitutional order in its own right and others who said, um, no, 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 you know, constitutionalism requires a sort of authorizing demos and, a, you know, The the sort of democratic visions of it, and I thought this is like this is a this is a debate from definitional fiat, right? We're not you know we're we're the definitions are competing, but we're not really hearing each other, and that's where I thought this idea of reflexive readjustment might come in handy, which is to say, okay, we have this concept, constitutionalism. Um, Much of its modern iteration, even though it has such a long lineage, right, much of its modern iteration has happened since the 18th century revolutions, and why don't we kind of try to decouple that from the national context in which it has happened, and that really requires a a level of reimagining that we can't do at the level of definitional fiat, it has to be sort of Um, we have to think about it in light of other institutions, non-national ones, um, that don't easily fit into the 18th century mold, and that, that was the idea behind that. You know, we, we can't hold the concept constant. Um, we have to modify the concept in light of the institutions that are instantiating it in, in new ways. Um, and so that, that may have been why it's sort of the, the book feels a little slippery about that, because I, I tried to get away from the definition of the, I I, I think I'm going to stop there.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Turku Ishiksel's book, "Europe's Functional Constitution: A Theory of Constitutionalism Beyond the State." I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Suleiman Bashir Dianya's book, "The Ink of the Scholars: Reflections on Philosophy in Africa. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.